everyone, this is David Tristivia. This is Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a podcast where we discuss the systemic issues of our world and the things that we can or can't do about them. Today, we're going to be talking about infrastructure. This is the foundation that makes our life possible. The things that you can see, like roads and bridges, and also the things that you don't see, like water pipes, subway lines, and the foundations of all our buildings and structures. And it is this foundation that allows us to grow economically and live our lives day to day. And it's starting to show its age, and that could be unsettling for a number of reasons. And to put it bluntly, a lot of this infrastructure is starting to crack and fail in a number of ways. The American Society of Civil Engineers, for example, came out with a big report this year in 2017 in which it gave the United States infrastructure one grade above failing. And so it's important to be aware of how this infrastructure is so necessary to our lives and what we could be looking at in terms of its inability to function the way we've come to rely on it. So let's look at a real world example of of this infrastructure failing us and failing individual people and, and really putting their lives at risk. So everyone's seen in the news, Flint, Michigan, right? This is a problem that's been going on for, at this point, years. Lack of upkeep of their water pipes, lack of money for repairs has created a public health pandemic, really. People can't drink the water coming out of their pipes because of lead and other chemicals and metals that have seeped into this water from these old, dilapidated water pipes that ended up this way because the infrastructure itself just wasn't kept up to date. And now the city itself is dying because of this. You've seen huge drives to bring people water and awareness. Uh, It ended in lots of plastic bottles and stuff, but very little actually has changed on the ground. And though the state is finally moving forward and helping the local municipalities in dealing with this problem, fact of the matter is this is just a very expensive thing to fix. And there's a lot of reticence from politicians to get involved because while they, they care and want to be involved and get rid of this bad PR nightmare that's going on, the money involved in order to fix something of this scale, this magnitude, is just enormous. And to take another similar example, in Los Angeles today, Somewhere between 14 and 18% of their treated water is wasted towards leakage that's coming out of these aging pipes that were built to last only about 100 years and are starting to fail in a lot of ways. It's estimated that $1.3 billion is needed to fix a lot of the worst current pipes in Los Angeles, and that's only 6% of their total pipes. The city is currently operating at a 300-year replacement cycle with a lot of their pipes. They're trying to get to a 250-year replacement cycle for pipes that were only meant to last for 100 years in the first place. And that's optimistic in a lot of places, too. Because while the pipes themselves may physically survive 100 years, the water and stuff seeps chemicals and things out of these pipes, you know, with situations like Flint. So the water may not be leaking, but it still may not be usable for people's health. And those were two water cases. And to take just a couple more quick examples, the DC Metro, this underground subway network that was a shining beacon in 1976 when it was first introduced, because of neglected maintenance and repairs, the chairman of their transit system came out last year with this startling announcement that if they don't shut down the Metro and make these major repairs, it won't be running at all in the next 10 years. In New York, we're facing similar Metro problems. Because it's a 24-hour system that runs all the time and services thousands of miles of track, Uh, there's very little time for them to actually perform repairs. Uh, You add that into the fact that in the middle of the 1900s, there was about a 30-year block where governors uh, refused to raise the rates on the subway. And so the subway, which wanted to raise the prices, 
but couldn't because it was politically inconvenient for these these politicians. They just kept deferring repairs for decades. And now that's really all caught up and uh, we're facing huge amounts of delays. There's uh, billions of dollars of shortfalls in terms of money we need to make these repairs. And we're seeing delays in trains, slower service, but also actual dangerous moments. We've had trains derail and all sorts of things. And so again, this is a great example that these things that seem like it's just, oh, we'll shift this schedule a little bit, ends up having real actual consequences on people's health and safety. Why don't we take a minute, David, to kind of explore how we got here in the first place? These are a couple of good examples we've outlined, but this whole system of infrastructure and deferred maintenance is really catching up to us in a lot of different ways. So yeah, let's jump back in time to look at when these big infrastructure projects first started happening. So of course, uh, there was the New Deal stuff going on with FDR, but I really want to focus on the construction of the, the highway interstate system. Because that had a huge effect on the country's economy. It had effect on all sorts of things. It created industries, it created towns, it destroyed towns, depending on where these highways went down. And it really sort of reshaped the country. Today, we're still we're left with this legacy. We have these highways still. The routes they took still define the way our country is shaped in terms of demographics and stuff. This legacy is with us today. But also, at the same time, the legacy of this infrastructure lives on. A lot of these roads and bridges that were built at the time and were updated and built, you know, in the anywhere from the 1950s to the, the mid-1970s, uh, were really only designed to last 50 to 75 years. And so we're getting up to the point where a lot of this stuff is reaching the end of its life. And at the time, when this was all first built, there was lots of political will and lots of money available to construct these things. Because it's new construction, increasing the economy, it's a huge dramatic thing that sees a lot of economic benefit from that. But when we jump to today... And we're just repairing these things that we're already depending on to maintain the current economic growth that we have. That suddenly becomes a lot more difficult because investing money back into this isn't seeing direct economic benefit. It's just maintenance money to maintain the status quo. And there's a lot less political will for that. And though everybody will say infrastructure is great and they want to spend on it, when it actually comes down to dollars, there's really only money set aside for new infrastructure construction. It's much harder to get money set aside for maintenance upgrades, repairs, even when these repairs are desperately needed. For example, 10% of the country's bridges, and we have a lot of bridges, we have over 600,000 bridges in the United States. 10% of these, uh, so over 60,000, are considered structurally deficient, which is the lowest possible ranking uh, that engineers can give to a bridge. It means it needs to be torn down and rebuilt. That's 60,000 bridges. There's one in every state. And some of these are in very big areas. 16% of these are high traffic bridges uh, in major cities, places like Boston. And they're basically death traps waiting to collapse. And we saw all this uh, a couple years ago, one of these major bridges collapsed, cars fell in the river, people died. Um, and this is a very real problem. And there's no money set aside for this to fix these. There are efforts to push through bills to set aside money to address some of these most dangerous infrastructure portions. But it's really difficult to push this through because again, when you just look at a bridge, it looks fine. There's no big ribbon cutting that happens and shutting them down, rebuilding them um, makes taxpayers angry. You have to reroute traffic. It's very expensive. It's politically inconvenient. Everybody sort of loses. And this money that could go to building something new and increasing economic growth through that is instead forced to go to the side just to maintain the status quo. And our status quo becomes more and more expensive to keep up. Yeah, that's a great point, David. And like you said, a lot of these problems are because we built things that weren't meant to last that long. Like you just mentioned bridges. And I think 55% of all our bridges are over 40 years old. And most of them were built with only a 50-year lifespan intended. And that's a big part of this. But another part of this is just the way that we grew in the first place. 
as we scaled things to the automobile, we built these massive highway networks. We also encouraged a lot of suburban sprawl. And one of the consequences of sprawling out like we have done is that the revenue that you collect from your growing population is outpaced by the growing liability associated with this infrastructure. So if you take Lafayette in Louisiana, for example, in 1949, they had five feet of water pipes per person. As the population grew to 2015, their population tripled, but the number of pipes per person increased by a magnitude of 10, so 56 feet of pipes per person. And so that's part of this problem, is that we have to build more and more infrastructure to support our population growth, but we're also building the infrastructure in order to grow our population so that we can hope to pay for it. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. And because a lot of this infrastructure was paid for by borrowed money, the hope has always been that even if we can't afford it now, we're going to grow our way out of the problem. And it's really only dug us a deeper hole for ourselves. Yeah, Daniel, exactly. I think you really hit on one of the deadly cycles of infrastructure here, which is, okay, we're going to fund this infrastructure now, and we're going to take on debt to build this. But it'll be okay, because once we complete this infrastructure, our municipality, our county, our city, whatever, is going to see growth as people come to use this, whether it's new roads, new pipes, uh, whatever we're building. It allows more people to come in and move in and, and take advantage of this. But as more people move in, now we need more infrastructure to support that. And we get caught in this loop, like more people come, we need to build more stuff and blah, blah, blah. And eventually you get to some point where your infrastructure spending can't keep up with your tax base growth. And that's when you, you reach the peak of this cycle. And then it all sort of goes downhill from there. Because once your infrastructure spending can't keep up, whether that's because you can't add debt fast enough to build this, you had to cut taxes or your tax base isn't growing fast enough. Or, or that maintenance factor, uh, which you didn't account for in the beginning, is starting to grow too much and you can't keep up both repairing infrastructure and building the new stuff that you want to. So as your infrastructure starts slowly collapsing or getting uh, shoddy, you'll start losing residents. Less people come in, your tax base isn't growing as fast, so you have less to spend on infrastructure, which makes the cycle worse. Eventually, you start losing people. That tax base starts shrinking. And then from there, the whole system just totally collapses. There's no money to pay for the improved infrastructure infrastructure collapses, and then you lose your tax base even faster from that. You see that in a small scale in, in cities when, when people start getting frustrated with the city and moving somewhere out, moving to the suburbs, which left a lot of the cities in disarray and ruined and bankrupt in the 1980s. And we're seeing it now in, in, in rural America in a huge, huge degree. Yeah, it's kind of this idea that you can pay for maintenance now, or you can kick this can down the road and try to pay for it later. Of course, the problem is the further you kick that can down the road, the more these costs kind of balloon, both directly in the form of having to repair or replace these failing systems, and indirectly. Because as infrastructure starts to function less and less, we have an economic impact, right? So we have delays, we have wear and tear on vehicles that have to drive down rocky roads or deal with potholes. We have lost jobs and lost economic activity as a result of some of these infrastructure problems. You mentioned rural areas, right? A lot of rural municipalities faced with these ballooning liabilities have opted to simply just dig up their asphalt roads and just lay gravel roads down because it's a lot cheaper to maintain. Yeah, and this is what progress really looks like in 2017. This is a relatively new phenomenon. It's only shown up in the past five years or so, which, interestingly enough, isn't tied in with the recession. A lot of people seem to blame this on, oh, yeah, 2008 was bad. Municipalities started going broke. They had to do this, and, but now things are okay. But no, this is, you know, while the economy is doing great, 
Part of it is big demographic shifts. Lots of people are moving out of rural areas and ending up in the urban areas. Part of it is the cost of upkeeping this infrastructure has just grown too much. One, because of a declining tax base. Two, because of increased costs of infrastructure. So asphalt, concrete, it's a lot more expensive now than it used to be. Uh, they've grown in cost at a rate faster than inflation and much faster than taxes have risen. So uh, these municipalities have no choice but to literally dig up asphalt roads, which is, you know, what is more American than a road in the middle of nowhere um, with a pickup truck cruising down it? Well, now that road is ripped up. It's just dirt road because that's all we can afford anymore. It's really sort of interesting thing. And I, I don't think it's necessarily bad. We have too much asphalt as it is. But one thing to note is while, while these towns celebrate this as a progressive move, what it's doing a lot is shifting costs from the municipality onto the people who live in that municipality. So instead of collecting tax money to build this stuff, they defer increasing taxes and instead let you suffer increased wear and tear on your vehicle, your tires, your axles, the actual physical appearance of the vehicle from pings and, and, and rocks hitting it. And all of this is impacting how much money you have, how much money you have to spend on, on upkeep and stuff. So they're shifting costs from keeping up roads to you keeping up your automobile. It also has an interesting side effect, causing lots of people who maybe were driving smaller cars, Priuses, things that are environmentally more effective than SUVs and trucks, to dump those vehicles because they're not so great on gravel roads, and instead opt for trucks, opt for SUVs, which in a vicious cycle, you know, increase more for climate change, and also rip up these dirt and gravel roads faster, sort of causing a vicious cycle once again, which costs more for the municipality to fix and makes the problem even worse. This whole system is lots of feedback loops that keep acting on each other and getting worse and worse. So roads are one of these things that is very visible, right? One of these very apparent aspects of infrastructure. But there's a lot of infrastructure that's hidden until it breaks. So we don't really know how important it is until it fails. Because it's hidden, we don't spend as much money to maintain it because it's not so politically easy to spend money on stuff you can't see. But then when it does fail, it affects us in a very big way. One of those things is concrete, literally the things we build our highways with and a lot of our buildings. Yeah, one of those very big things that has a profound effect on everything around us that we really don't think about, even though we see it everywhere, is, is steel-reinforced concrete, right? What is steel-reinforced concrete? I mean, that's the concrete we use to build just about everything, office buildings, uh, bridges, um, anything. Anytime you see a piece of concrete holding something up, Odds are that's steel-reinforced concrete. And what steel-reinforced concrete is, it's, it's just concrete. It has steel rebar, those like thick sort of ribbed rods that you sometimes see on the side of the road or whatever. Those are inserted inside the concrete to give it strength in a different direction than concrete normally would have. And that's what gives concrete its kind of strength, right? And it's lower cost to build, and it's more efficient. So the, the invention of steel-reinforced concrete really like totally radicalized the construction industry and radicalized architecture. You saw a lot of major architects take this new idea, people like Frank Lloyd Wright, and build things that had never been possible before without it. It's an incredible product. It really reshaped the world and what we see, um, and it was very cheap. So prior to that, if you wanted to build a skyscraper or a tall office building or something, you would have to use very expensive steel-framed buildings. Uh, which is a very strong, reliable method of construction, but it's expensive. Concrete was another alternative, but it was slow to set. Um, Steel-reinforced concrete, though, was something nice in between. It was cheap, but you could lay it quickly, and it was very strong. And when they first started constructing these things, you would see people advertise and talk about and, and about how these were going to be here around forever. 
they were predicting thousand year buildings that would last as long as you know the romans like a lot of the roman construction was concrete so people pointed that and says we can have that too but as uh, is the case with so many of these things there were unforeseen consequences and so the thing is is that concrete isn't waterproof it's porous it breathes it lets water in and out lets air in and out and that's part of what gives it its strength but it's also its achilles heel when it's reinforced with steel because that steel inside also breathes it gets water on it it gets air on it and it oxidizes and starts to rust and so this thing that's holding up the concrete that gives it its strength suddenly starts turning to dust in the inside and that causes the concrete around it to start falling apart too this thing is called spalling and i know you've seen it maybe you didn't realize what it is but when you start looking for it you'll see it everywhere it's that sort of process like you see concrete sort of start chipping off it falls off the side it becomes kind of stained and you can sort of see these steel rebar beams inside and once that happens the structural integrity of this bridge of this building of whatever it is you're looking at is compromised and eventually maybe not now but maybe in a decade much much sooner than a thousand years that structure is going to have to be torn down and rebuilt because it's just waiting to fall down at that point so what we've ended up accidentally doing is building a sort of disposable infrastructure all around the country and all around the world our bridges our buildings all these are built on foundations built with the steel reinforced concrete that's just waiting to collapse and instead of having buildings and and, and structures that are going to last us well into the next few centuries. We're already coming to the end of life of a lot of these, and they need to be just completely demolished and rebuilt. And we do have alternatives. There are better types of concrete. You can do steel reinforced concrete with stainless steel rebar, but that's much, much, much more expensive. And if we were to build things responsibly like that, then it becomes too expensive to build up with the scale that we have. So we had to choose. Do we build this sort of piecemeal temporary thing and, and benefit from the growth of that and worry about the problems later? because it's going to be well past our, our lifetime? Or do we build for future generations at higher cost, less stuff, but build it better? And we just haven't opted for that. Instead, we've opted for disposable infrastructure, disposable world, disposable buildings. One of the unfortunate consequences of putting off these costs and building for the short term is that now that we're facing a lot of these problems, there's so many competing demands for our funding that it becomes hard to allocate the funds necessary to fix some of these infrastructure problems. Redirect funds for its pensions to some of these climate resilient structures that it has to build on its coast. But one of the other major factors that will make it difficult to pay for infrastructure in terms of not just new construction, but these repairs and some of these replacement costs is the rising cost of resources and materials. These aren't just the ones you normally think of like oil or natural gas, but a lot of materials that you wouldn't consider to be a problem, like sand. So sand is one of these inputs that's really important to not just construction and cement and concrete, but also it's an important input for electronics, glass, and a lot of factories. It's also used as a major input for fracking and oil extraction. And when you think of sand, you might picture you know, long beaches or the rolling dunes of the Sahara Desert. And it doesn't seem like it's a finite resource, but it absolutely is. And what we're seeing now is that skyrocketing demand for sand as construction is booming all over the world, coupled with the fact that this resource is becoming scarce as we're seeing crises start to pop up all over the world in the form of environmental destruction, violent conflict, illegal mining, regional conflicts between different countries, and skyrocketing prices. And it's important to point out that not all sand is equal. So Dubai, for example, 
which is the city that's you know kind of famous for building these elaborate and massive construction projects, which has a lot of desert sand all around it, has to import most of its sand from Australia because it, the sand they have is not suited for construction. Florida, for example, has to ship a lot of their sand from Mexico and Nova Scotia in Canada. And that's unfortunate economically because construction experts will tell you in the U.S. that if you have to ship sand more than 60 miles away from your construction area, it becomes unprofitable. And India is a good example of a country that's really facing a sand crisis. You know, India is known for these sand mafias that kind of support the massive construction boom going on there. A lot of people are illegally mining sand from rivers and it's destroying the river ecosystem as well as disrupting the water flow, which means that local villages lose their water source. And there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of illegal trading going on around it. Yeah, I mean, in a way, sand has almost become as violent and as deadly as, as blood diamonds. But because, you know, it's not a luxury item, like diamonds, it's one thing for people to boycott or protest. You know, it's a very visual, shiny thing. It catches lots of people's interest. It's a luxury item. We don't need diamonds. Um, at least most of us don't. Industrial processes do. But in your day-to-day life, you don't encounter diamonds. You don't need diamonds. And so it's very easy to say, look at all this violence that's happening around the extraction of diamonds. This is a bad thing. I'm not going to support this. But when that same violence happens around sand, and, and it is happening, it's in India, like Daniel mentioned, there's mafias. Uh, there's a huge black market industry for, for sand. People get killed. People get forced into slavery in order to mine sand. It's a huge problem in Africa. This is just as deadly, if not more, because industry is larger than diamonds. It's killing more people, causing more violence. But this is something we need. This is something that we absolutely have to have to sustain the construction, the economic growth, and our quality of life, you know, the status quo as a whole. And it's something hidden that we don't think about. I mean, who thinks about sand in construction? Who thinks about the sand that went into our concrete or where it came from? It's hidden. And this violence is hidden. But it's very real. It's a very big problem. And it's, it's getting expensive. And this is another problem infrastructure is facing. Yeah, it's getting more expensive. And that's really the main point here. I mean, even if you're someone who's not really concerned about violence in other regions or abroad, just from an economic standpoint, it means rising materials costs. It means rising inputs. And if we're faced with an infrastructure that was only built to last 75 to 100 years and we need to replace it all, it's going to be a lot more expensive to do that with rising costs and these increased competing demands that we're facing. Yeah, and again, this repair... This replacement isn't going to bring us the same economic boom that the construction of these interstates did in the first place. This is just about maintaining what we have now. Uh, This is the bare minimum we need to keep things going on. It's going to cost a lot of money and, unfortunately, a lot of suffering as well. Our infrastructure is so interconnected. And it's not just our highways and bridges, but also our freight system, which is comprised of our railroads and our inland waterway systems and our international shipping networks. And all these things are interconnected. And if there's problems or delays in any one of them, it puts additional stress on the others. So, for example, you know, we have this very big industrial and freight infrastructure, our inland waterways, which is very important to our economy. It makes up 14% of all our domestic freight. And most of our nation's grain exports get carried at some point on these inland waterways. 50% of all the vessels on this network are experiencing delays due to aging locks, which is part of this infrastructure. If the delays in our Inland waterways get significant enough that people shift transportation to railroads. That means more delays on the railroad sector. So all these things are interconnected. And a lot of it we don't see. And a lot of it is not just delays, but it poses potential hazards to our health. 
if especially if we're talking about these hidden things, there are literally ticking time bombs under the feet of many of us. Underground natural gas storage tanks, which is the least sexy set of words I can possibly think of. Uh, but they're all over the country. They're a huge part of our infrastructure. They're very important in maintaining our oil and gas infrastructure, which contributes to energy, which contributes to heating, um, and is a, a vital, important part of our, our nation's energy independence and security. So a lot of these are just sort of old oil wells that have been emptied out. There's no more oil in it. And we repurpose them by injecting natural gas down these oil wells and storing it underground into these large natural spaces. But a lot of them leak. A lot of these weren't designed for it. They were designed only for very briefly extracting oil. Some of them were, you know, 50-year lifespans, 75-year lifespans. And once again, those numbers keep coming up, and we are reaching the end of those and surpassing it. And so we're leaking huge amounts of methane, huge amounts of natural gas, which goes into the atmosphere, contributes to global warming, and causes problems all around us. Also, some of these things literally explode. There's been cases where cracks in these protective layers cause gas to seep out and blow up in towns and people have once again died because of this it's a huge problem and there's very little oversight for this there's an organization at the federal level that oversees all of these underground reservoirs but they don't have any regulators nobody actually goes out to check the facilities they've left that to the states so every state has their own department and they go out and some of these are like ridiculously small ohio just does a visual inspection once a year at each site which isn't very useful when it's an underground storage facility. But that's all it takes to be regulated and, and safe. In fact, one of these states is one of my favorite examples of this lack of regulatory oversight, and that's Kansas. So in Kansas, uh, one of these companies running these, these underground storage facilities sued uh, the state, saying that it wasn't their job to actually be regulating this, that there's a federal oversight that's supposed to be doing it, and they were feeling like they were getting regulated doubly so. And the courts agree with them. A federal court agreed, said, you know what, you're right. So Kansas, you're not allowed to, to provide any oversight to send out people to inspect these wells. Well, the federal government also doesn't want to hire anybody to do that. So it ends up um, literally no one has checked out any of these wells. There's regulations out there, but nobody's actually inspecting or enforcing or making sure anything's happening. And we're just taking the word of this company that I'm sure has everyone's best interests at heart to have a very safe and structurally sound well and trusting them that that is the case. Uh, and there's no enforcement. Nobody's double-checking. Nobody's making sure. And that's just the way it is. And it's important to point out that in that Kansas case, this court case only took place because of a fatal explosion of one of these storage leaks in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And we keep seeing this all over the place. The, there was one recently in California that released 88,000 metric tons of methane, which to put in perspective, that's a big number, but like, what does that mean? It's the same as, as burning 800 million gallons of gasoline that's a lot of stuff this is a big impact in climate change um and these things are failing all over the place which both puts our energy storage at risk is a physical health danger in terms of these explosions and also is making climate change worse and climate change is starting to impact some of these infrastructure systems as heat rises in areas that weren't expecting it roads crack and break nuclear power plants have had trouble in some areas cooling their systems because it's coming from a source of water that's too hot for them to use. Train rails will stretch and kink to excessive heat. Our electrical grid, which is already at capacity, has more stress added to it with increased heat. This year, uh, the heat in Arizona was so bad, planes literally couldn't take off. Talking about our air infrastructure and stuff, and it's not because of the, the runway was too hot or too sticky, but the temperature was too hot, planes literally couldn't get enough lift to fly. And that was just, they were just grounded for days. And as the climate 
temperature continues to rise, we're seeing permafrost in the Arctic tundra start to thaw, and it's impacting our energy infrastructure that we've built there. That's right. So oil pipelines are starting to sink and crack just as another time bomb to to cause huge dramatic oil spills there in the Arctic wildlife. Um, And then actual houses, infrastructure, um, hospitals, bridges, roads are crumbling and cracking as they start sinking because they had been built on this permafrost. It was considered rock hard and was going to be that way forever, but that's not the case anymore. And so these foundations are sinking and settling and moving as things melt and shift and that's causing cracks. And these buildings, which were supposed to last until the foreseeable future, um, are now having to be torn down, abandoned, rebuilt. And that's another drag on the economy that's expensive. Insurance doesn't want to pay for this. Nobody wants to raise taxes to pay for this increased maintenance on the infrastructure. And uh, we are starting to see the consequences. Actual costs look something like this. $1 trillion is needed to maintain and meet the demand of our drinking water systems over the next 25 years. Almost $200 billion in oil and gas pipeline maintenance in the next eight years. Our bridges have a backlog of needed repairs in the range of $123 billion. Airports need $100 billion in the next two decades. $64 billion is needed for current rehab in our dams. Even the Society of Civil Engineers isn't sure how much it's going to cost to clean up all the toxic waste dumps we've had, but it's easy to estimate in the trillions of dollars over the next century. Our national levies protect $1.3 trillion in property values, and we need an estimated $80 billion over the next 10 years to keep them in repair. Passenger rail alone, not even counting all that freight rail and stuff, needs $30 billion. Not in 10 years, not in five years, but right now. There is a serious backlog of needs in our light rail and bus systems of $90 billion, which is projected to grow to $122 billion by 2032. And roads, the big gorilla in the room, needs $700 billion of fixes right now. That's not in the next 10 years. That's what they need at this moment. And this is just the big, very obvious sections of these infrastructure costs, of these needs of maintenance. Um, And every year that these repairs aren't made, they get more expensive. So this isn't just a linear amount that's added on each, each year, but this grows exponentially as these repairs get worse, as they get more expensive, as more and more of them appear. This is a problem that you can't keep ignoring because it keeps getting worse. We're looking at a future where we have even more debt, even more unfunded liabilities like our pensions, and a vast infrastructure that is crumbling from within that needs to be torn down and replaced, it needs to be repaired. And this is all going to be, like you said, in the context of exponentially rising resource and materials cost. Yeah, so really this is a thing we have to act now. There might still be time to come in and save this system it's going to be painful. It's going to be expensive. It's going to hurt politicians, but it needs to be dealt with it now. Um, Obama tried. He introduced an infrastructure bill as a great start. It wasn't as much as, as he initially hoped for. Trump came in and promised a large infrastructure bill that has not been carried through yet. Um, and the interesting thing is, you know, infrastructure spending is actually very popular. People love it. It's something that they can see directly impacting their life. It creates uh, new bridges, new roads, municipalities love it, cities love it. It's a very popular thing to do. But the problem is, and the reason that it's not happening, there's just not enough money for it. Like Daniel mentioned, with our debt obligations, with pensions and stuff, the the budget's already so tight, and this tax bill that's coming through that's going to cause even more deficit um, makes it even more difficult to find money to set aside for these needed repairs. Uh, Everyone is hoping that if they just ignore it, then somebody else will have to deal with it when their term comes around. 
And it's important to point out that not all infrastructure spending is equal. It's very easy as a politician to purchase a shiny new rail car, for example, and that will be included in our infrastructure spending data. But if the real necessary repairs are underground in some switch or relay that nobody can see, then buying a shiny new rail car won't necessarily solve the underlying problem. So Daniel, what can we do? That's an interesting question. Since we are looking at a future where we're going to have more competing demands for our funding, we are going to have more of these repairs and replacement costs. We have to realize that we can't get away anymore with this kind of wasteful short-term spending that is founded on this idea that we can experience infinite growth and abundant energy and resources. Our world is limited and we can't grow our way out of the problem forever. We need to stop focusing on this infinite growth and depending on growth as a way to fund these projects. When we build things, we need to set aside money for the maintenance of it. And we need to have realistic expectations of what that maintenance will be and what the lifetime of these projects will be. Because right now, when that is set aside, uh, it's never enough and it's always too optimistic. We need realistic projections of the lifetime costs of these constructions when we build them. We need money set aside for that. We need money in the budget from a federal level as well as local and state levels dedicated for infrastructure spending. Whether that means less money for defense spending or something else, we have to set money aside for this right now. Because if we don't, this is going to be such a humongous problem. And it's it's ironic that we started all this off to kick off this infinite growth. But now as these infrastructure costs catch up with us, it's going to start being more and more of a drag on the system, slowing that growth, slowing our GDP, which on a very large uh, national scale creates that death spiral we talked about in those rural municipalities. As this starts impacting the economy, it becomes even harder to find money to repair this, and it gets worse and worse. So we need to deal with this now rather than later if we want to have any chance of coming out of this even remotely okay. I think we can do it. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Episodes like this are kind of hard to talk about because we're trying to point towards this very systemic and very broad range of things. And and so much of this is interconnected and big that it's difficult to connect the dots on everything. But we want to kind of establish these concepts so that we can later drill down into more specific things. Yeah, so that means spending more time looking at this concrete or the sand conflict, digging into the road network and how that's shaped everything, looking at at the water systems of the country, um, these toxic waste sites, these Superfund sites and things. Each one of these really deserves its own very detailed, close look um, where you have a better understanding of just why they're all such big problems. And maybe we're doing a disservice by looking at it all at such a big scale and, and waving our hand and saying these things are bad. But we need an understanding at, before we can dig into this that all this stuff is interconnected, that these are parts of larger systemic issues. And, and once we understand that, it becomes much easier for us to dig in and look at the actual real-life scale of these problems and how they impact us in our day-to-day. We hope we're doing an okay job kind of outlining these broad concepts, and we're really excited to drill down into more specific issues in upcoming shows. I know next week I'm really looking forward to our show which is uh, something about the ocean to turn things back, climate-related. And uh, I'll just leave it at that, but it's a very exciting episode, something that we're both looking forward to sharing with all of you. If you want to find more information about the things we talked about today, including links, journal articles, and more, you can find that information on ashesashes.org, as well as a full transcript of this episode. Once again, thanks for joining us. 
This is Ashes Ashes. Bye-bye. Bye.